Um, so, <clears throat> in First John in chapter four, uh, what we're going to be be talking about this morning is love. And so, so far this Advent season, we've celebrated the coming of our Savior by preaching on both hope uh, and and on peace. Colin preached on hope a few weeks ago, and I was able to preach on peace last week. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. We get this thing going. The good thing about being a small church is that nobody cares if I do stuff like this, right? Um, yeah, and so, and I was able to preach on peace last week, and so this week as we continue in our Advent season, uh, we're going to be worshiping the coming of our Savior by preaching about the love that was manifested to us in his birth. We'll worship the arrival of Jesus uh, by preaching about the love that he displayed in his ministry and in his death, and we'll worship the birth of the Messiah by preaching on the love that is perfected through all who believe in him. In so doing, we'll be looking at the writings of the beloved Apostle John, who some call the, uh, the Apostle of Love. He's the one whom Jesus loved, and he, I think he knows the love of God um, very well. And so in 1 John today, we're going to see very plainly the, the origins of God's love. We're going to see how his love was manifested to us, and we're going to see what that means for us as Christians. And so if you found your place to 1 John... First John in chapter 4 and verse 7, please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. First John chapter 4 and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves have been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not, know, does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You can have a seat. So throughout 1 John, we discover the apostle issuing several different tests that mark the, the genuineness, I guess you could say, that, that mark the genuine believer. And, and one of those tests that he gives that's, that's meant not only to unmask the wolf that's in sheep's clothing uh, within the church, but also to give assurance to the genuine believer is the test of love. And that's our first point. We find these this first point in verses 7 through 8, the test of love. And here in chapter 4, it isn't the first time that we've seen this test in John. It's, 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 it's very common uh, for John here in, the, in the, uh, his first epistle to come and revisit some of his topics. We've seen this actually in chapter 3 and uh, before here in 1 John. And, and you'll notice throughout the book of 1 John, he just revisits things. He reteaches them, but each time taking it to an even deeper level. And, and when we read 1 John, we kind of really need to think of it more like a spiral staircase instead of like a linear staircase. You know, a linear staircase, like such as the one back here that goes upstairs, you start at one point and then you go straight up and you're, you're moving progressively along a line upwards the entire time. But on a spiral staircase, you kind of keep the same uh, vicinity in a way, but you just keep spiraling around, revisiting each direction as you keep going upwards and upwards and upwards. And that's what the book of First John is like. He, it's like going up a spiral staircase. You'll, you'll kind of walk around that staircase and you'll notice like, hey, love, I, I've seen this before. And as you keep progressing upwards, you come back and you see it again and then you see it again. But each time it goes deeper and deeper and it has great significance. And, and here as he revisits the test of love, John begins with a very simple command in verse 7. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In this one verse, the word love was used four different times, and, and each time that the, the word love is used, it has the same root in, in the original language, which I think many of us are pretty familiar with that word agape, right? It, it meaning love, this divine love. Um, each time it's using that same root, but three out of four of those times that this word love is used in this verse, it's describing love in just slightly different ways. So for instance, beginning with the very first use of love, the word beloved that John uses to address the congregation here, uh, it literally means loved by God. And then again, later on there in verse 7, that next phrase, let us love, is actually one word in the original language, and it carries with it um, this, this, this sense of embracing God's will and, and living through Christ. It's, it's loving in God's preferred way as he's ordained. And then we see again that love is from God, and this is just agape. It's divine love. It's, it's God's preferred love. It is his love. And then we see again, whoever loves for the fourth time. And again, it just simply means uh, it's carrying with it, uh, embracing God's will, living through Christ, loving with the love that God prefers. So John the Apostle, the beloved Apostle, is saying here in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He is literally saying by definition in a way to kind of make this a little bit more simple, you who are loved by God, embrace God's will. Love one another as Christ would, for this love is God's love. And whoever embraces God's will and loves as Christ did is born from, is born from God and truly intimately knows God unto saving faith. So when we take that, that, that verse, verse 7, and we look at it in the original language, basically that's how it is, is written by definition. You who are loved by God, Embrace God's will, love one another as Christ would, for this is God's love. And whoever embraces God's will and loves as Christ did is born from God and truly, intimately knows God unto saving faith. And John drives this truth home even further by saying the same thing except in the negative there in verse 8 when he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And we see in 1 John quite a bit... Um, this comparison and contrasting. It's a good way that he teaches. He'll state something in the positive, and then he'll kind of restate that in the negative, so that way you can really wrap your mind around it. John's a beautiful teacher. Uh, people, uh, theologians have described John's writing um, such as this, that it's, it's shallow enough that even a baby can wade in it, but it's deep enough that even the smartest theologian can drown, right? So John's very, uh, a very great gifted teacher. And so this compare and contrast, I mean, he's basically just saying, you know, hey, if, if you love others, we know that you've been born from God. But hey, if you don't love others, we know that you're not born from God. It's very simple. It's a matter of whether or not somebody habitually loves others. And, and it's not just with any kind of love, but like I said earlier, with that agape kind of love, that love that God, that embraces God's will in loving and living through Christ. And, and so it's, it's very clear from John that, that a mark of a genuine believer a test if someone has, has truly been born again is if they love others as Christ loves. And for some of us here in the room, like John's stepping on our toes. I don't know about you, but I mean, I, when I read this, this verse and as God ministered to me through this section of Scripture, he stepped all over my toes because 
honestly, like love is hard. Like, and, and love is not something that we come by naturally, honestly. By our nature, we're, we're, we're depraved sinners. We're, we hate God. We, we're selfish people. We, we seek our own will first. It's, it's not something that we come by naturally. And, and maybe you're saying, man, Tanner, as you're, as you're preaching through this verse and, and you're talking about like, hey, if you love people, then then if you love people according to God's will, then, then, then you're saved, you're born from God. But if you don't love, then you're not born from God. Maybe you're hearing that and you're saying, man, I don't always love people. I really struggle. And, and in a good way, in a nice way of saying it, maybe you say, man, sometimes I feel very strongly about somebody in a negative way, right? Like, man, I really have a hard person, a hard time with that person, correct? You know, maybe you say, hey, man, last month or, or last week or just yesterday, I put... I put, other, I, I put myself above other people instead of laying my life down for those around me as Christ did. You know, just last night I put my own will and my own desire above my wife instead of, instead of loving her as Christ would, you know. Maybe, maybe that's your mantra. Maybe that's what you're saying this morning. Maybe you're saying, man, this is hard and you're stepping all over my toes. I, I want us to understand something and, I, and I'm not letting us off the hook. For, for, for not loving others around us as we should have in those moments. Because, uh, by golly, we should have. And I'm not letting us off the hook, but I want us to understand something. I want us to remember how John writes in, in 1 John, and, and really in John altogether. Uh, I want us to remember how he writes. I want us to remember the original language. I want us to remember the idea that he's conveying, that he's bringing about that a genuine born-again Christian will live a practicing, habitual lifestyle of love. And maybe you're like, what does all of that mean? What, what do I mean when, when I say practicing lifestyle? What does a lawyer do? A lawyer gets up every single day and a lawyer practices what? Law, Law right? Uh, a, a doctor gets up every single day and practices what? medicine, right? And so a lawyer wakes up every single day, day in and day out. His or her livelihood is to practice law. They work at a law firm. They go to court. They work with the judge. They work with the, the plaintiff. They work with, uh, with, with everything that's going on. Everything they do in their occupation where they spend most of their time has to do with practicing law. They make a habitual lifestyle out of it. It's an intentional choice every single day. In fact, they went to law school. They did so much to get to the place to where they are, they build their life around their job. A, a doctor is the same way. A doctor gets up every single morning, is committed to saving lives, committed to practicing medicine, can, committed to taking care of the sick, uh, so much so that their identity is literally doctor so-and-so, right? When they go to, 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 uh, to, to school to, to practice medicine and those things, and, and they get their PhD and their, their doctorate, they, they become Dr. Smith or Dr. whatever. It literally changes their identity. It is who they are. They habitually, day in and day out, get up and make a choice to practice their occupation. And, and this provokes the same kind of connotation for us as Christians. We day in and day out... Wake up, habitually practicing love for God and for others. It's the great, great commandment, right? We get up every single day. And now, now here's the thing. We don't always get it perfect, right? The, the lawyer doesn't win every single case, correct? The doctor can't save absolutely everybody. The doctor doesn't get things right the first time sometimes. We don't always do it perfectly, but we make 
that, that choice to live a habitual lifestyle of loving God and loving others. And I challenge us, man, what's the first thought on your mind when you wake up in the morning? What's the first thought on my mind? A lot of times, and to, to be honest, it's kind of more self-centered. I'm going to get up and get me a cup of coffee. I'm going to scroll through my Facebook. I'm going to do my thing. And it's right before I head out the door that I'm like, man, I didn't read my word today. You know what I'm saying? I didn't even have my neighbor on my mind. I didn't think about Joe. I didn't think about Jeff. I didn't think about so-and-so that I'm going to run into at the coffee shop when I go and get me another cup of coffee. I didn't think anything about those people. Many times throughout my week, that's my life. I can be very selfish. And I'm just saying that in a practical way that hopefully you guys can relate to the same thing. I want to challenge us that, man, maybe our thought first thing in the morning should be to get down on our knees and thank the Lord for another day and ask God how I can serve you today and how I can live a life habitually of loving you and loving others. It would change the whole outlook of our day. It would change the whole, um, um, it would change us as a church and all together. And so I kind of want to prove my point through uh, what, what I'm saying here with verse 8. And it's the whole point for, for John, uh, the whole point for John to say it is, is to validate his argument that a genuine Christian loves others. And so I'm just trying to, to ride on his coattail because when he, when he says the same thing in the negative, anyone who does not, does not love does not know God because God is love. So that's basically anybody who professes Christianity, yet there is no, and when I say no, I mean zero reflection of God's love in their life. True, gospel, godly, agape love. When there's no reflection of that, when there's no love for God, but in fact, you can tell the fact that they have no love for God because they love their sin more. When a person who professes Christianity says, I love God, but matter of fact, I really love this sin, I'm going to hang on to this. Shows that they have no love for God. When they don't make a, a life of habitually loving others, then they can't truly say that they know God in saving faith. They can't, they can't say that they truly know God because because when we're born again, yes, we're, we still battle our flesh. Yes, we still have this stinking, ugly tent of flesh on, yet we still have this battles against principalities and powers in the heavenly realm. Yes, we still have this battle going on, but we've been given a new nature. And with this new nature comes the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us. It is literally God, and we submit to the will of God, and we love God as God, or love God and love others as God loves. And since God is love and God is living inside of you, that is the result of it if you've been truly born again. So if you have been born again, you will love others. And since God is love, someone absolutely cannot say that they are a Christian if they do not love others. And I want you to think about what Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By this, everyone's going to know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It doesn't say, by this, everyone's going to know that you are my disciples if you come to church regularly. It doesn't say, hey, everybody's going to know that you're my disciples if you volunteer to serve the most. It doesn't say that everybody's going to know that you're my disciples if you quote the most scriptures, if you know the word the best. It's not, it doesn't say that, hey, everybody's going to know that you're my disciples if, if you sing on the worship team, or everybody's going to know that you're my disciples if you preach the word. Everybody's going to know you're my disciples if you lead a lighthouse group. No, he says, if you love one another, everyone will know that you belong to Jesus. That's a test. If you love one another. So I ask the question, even, what about at work? Do people know that you're a disciple of Jesus by the way that you love them, by the way that you love God? 
What's your talk like and what's your walk like? What about where you play, where you go to school, Anthony? Do people know that you're a Christian? How long does it take for somebody to figure out that you love Jesus, that you're a disciple of, of Jesus, that you picked up your cross and you decided to follow him? And just as it's evident that as a lawyer, just, just as it's evident that, that, that he is a lawyer by, by the things that he talks about, by where he spends most time, and just as it's evident that he or she's a doctor by the title in front of their name, it ought to be very evident that we are Christians because of how we love. And, and it's who we are because God is love. And God lives through us in His Holy Spirit. It's, it, it literally changes our identity. And so, so as, as the text says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love's from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And now that we've seen the test, and, and one of the reasons why we are to live a life of love as Christians, let's move on to the second point, the source and the example of love in verses 9 and 10. I think I'm going to read that. Sorry, I lost my place there. So by simply saying that God is love, we could, we could really wrap this point up pretty quickly. If the point is the source and example of love, we could just say, well, God is love, so he's our source and our example, right? By saying God is love, you would understand what I'm saying, right, Anthony? By saying God is love, Carlito would probably understand what I'm saying, right? By saying God is love, Ben and Amanda get it. Like, it's a general statement that people understand God is love, he's our source and our example. Okay, I understand that. We could wrap it up pretty quickly. Everyone would understand. But, but however, true to his style here in verses 9 and 10, John leads us out of the wade pool in this little kiddie pool where it's about waist deep into the deep, rich, and vast love of the Father and of the Son. In this, he says in verse 9, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. See, God's love isn't mystical, it's, it's not totally incomprehensible. It's not something that we absolutely cannot understand. It's, it's not far-fetched, and it's not very distant that we can't reach it. Because here's the thing. Over 2,000 years ago, the love of God was made tangible and was made present to us when the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. His love was made real, made tangible, made evident to us. And I want us to pause a moment, and I want us to look at, at the language used here in the text. It's just something that we could just skip right over if we're not careful. It doesn't say that God the Father just sent any son. It doesn't say that God the Father had many sons and he just sent this one son. No, it literally says that, that God sent his only, only, only son into the world that we might live through him. And, and that, war, that, that term, that, that title, only son, is only used nine times in the New Testament, and five of them are used by John. And so it carries this massive significance. It really portrays the special relationship that Jesus has with the Father. It really points to the uniqueness of Christ. There's no other Son of God. There's, there's, uh, there's, there's no other being like Jesus Christ. And here in this passage... John's strategy is, is really to highlight and magnify the love of God, or love of God be, beyond all measure. And he's demonstrating to us the best gift that was ever given to mankind. The best gift that was ever given to humanity. The best gift that was ever given in the universe. The only, only Son of God, born in the likeness of men so that we might obtain eternal life. Now let me ask you, Cody, you got one son, right? Would you give him up for the life of somebody else? 
You wouldn't, would you? But God did. And there wasn't, we weren't very beautiful people. Sinners, actually. Nasty people. And God sent His Son to die for us. Man, that's insane. It's awesome. It's not insane. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around. And that's only one level of God's love. It's one thing to send His only Son into a fallen and broken world, but His tangible, real, carefully calculated love goes even deeper and further here in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And, and at our Lighthouse meeting on Tuesday, I kind of talked a little bit about what propitiation means, right? Uh, and, and we see that $20 word come up here. It's a big word. Uh, I, don't, I don't try to say that I understand it perfectly, but I think I got a grasp on it, so I want to teach it to you guys a little bit. So that word propitiation, it literally means appeasement. It means satisfaction. And so we have to understand that, that God is, is love, yes, right? So by, by the text, the text says that God is love. But the text also says this word propitiation. And what does that imply? That God is love, but that's only one part of who God is. You can't just say God is love and that wraps up everything about him. But God is love, but he's also very holy. And he's also just. And the demands of holy justice says what? The demands of holy justice says that sin must be punished. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, it says that the wages of sin are death, and therefore the due penalty of sin is death, rightfully. And so this poses the question, how can God, whose holy justice demands death and judgment for sin, remain just in forgiving a sinner and giving him eternal life? When I say just... A just judge morally executes the law, right? An unjust judge immorally executes the law. Give you an illustration. Anthony, he leaves here, steals a car. Everybody sees him steal the car. He goes before the judge, and the judge says, hey, I have all this proof on you that shows that you stole this car. How do you plead? I'm guilty. The judge says, oh, I see that you're guilty, but I'm going to say that you're innocent. That's not a very just judge, is it? If, if Carlito walks out of here and he steals a piece of bubble gum at the gas station when they stop to get a drink after church, and the judge says, he, everybody caught him red-handed, same thing, he's pro- I mean, it's proven, and the judge looks at the guidelines for stealing a piece of bubble gum, and it says, hey, five hours of community, community service, and he says, you know what, I'm going to give Carlito life in prison. That's not a very just judge, is it? A just judge would come and look at the crime, and he would say, according to what our statutes are, and according to what the, what the, the law says to happen, is what I'm going to give you. That's a just judge, morally executing the law in fairness and righteousness. And so how is it? That God could be just in forgiving guilty sinners. How does that make any sense at all? How can God remain just in forgiving somebody like you and me who's caught red-handed as a sinner? Well, the answer is found in part of who he is in his love. In God's love, by him sending his only son to be the propitiation for our sins, he remains just. And I want you to remember what propitiation means. Appeasement means satisfaction. So in short, Christ satisfied the demands of God's holy justice and he appeased the wrath of God in his shed blood on the cross. And as we saw last week, it was through the sacrifice of Christ on the bloody cross that we as sinful men and sinful women are made to be at peace with God. That's how that happens. Jesus had to come and die on the cross. And I want to just dig that 
a little bit deeper. This word propitiation a little bit. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, it says, Therefore, he, who is Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, which is us. He's speaking more to, to Hebrews than the, the offspring of Abraham. But they, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So he became man. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And what does that mean? The high priest, the propitiation, the service of God. What does any of that stuff mean? I want to tell you that once a year... There's a thing called Day of, a day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in, in the Hebrew. The day of the, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel, after washing his clothes, his garments, and going through all the ceremonial steps and jumping through all the hoops that God said had to happen and, and, and doing all that was commanded, he entered into the holies of holies. And so in the temple, in the tabernacle, you would walk in, and there's a, a curtain that was made, right? And inside of that curtain was a place called what? You guys remember? What was on the other side of that? The Holy of Holies, right? And then on that Holy of Holies, there was this thing, in the Holy of Holies, there was this thing called the mercy seat. And behind the Holy of Holies, the only person that could go behind there was once a year was the high priest of Israel. And what he would do when he would go in there was he would take the blood of one goat and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat to cover, so to atone, to cover over the sins of Israel for one year. And there was a second goat, and he would lay his hands on the head of that goat, identifying with the people of Israel and placing his sins or placing the sins of Israel on that goat. And somebody would take that goat and they would lead him outside the camp into the wilderness to be lost. That's where we get the term scapegoat from. So, so you have one goat whose blood was, was sprinkled on the mercy seat where God would literally come and dwell in the Holy of Holies, covering the sins of Israel for a year, and another goat that the high priest would lay his hand on and cast out into the wilderness, signifying that the sins were remembered no more. So on the Day of Atonement, Israel's sins were, were covered, they were cast out. But like I said, this ceremony had to be repeated year after year after year. And this was the work of the high priest. Every year, he'd go in there, wash up, go into the Holy of Holies, kill a goat, sprinkle his blood on the on the mercy seat and cast the sins out on this other goat and he would go through this every single year. But this was just a foreshadow of what was to come. So by Hebrews in chapter 2 and verse 17 saying that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a, a more merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Meaning that God became man so he could relate to us and become a high priest on our behalf. And so Jesus Christ, the, the promised offspring of, of Abraham, the only son of God, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was born of a virgin in a lonely manger in Bethlehem. God became man and he dwelt among us. He humbled himself just like us in every single respect. He was tempted in every area as we are, and yet he did not sin even one time in his 33 years of living. And this Jesus was nailed to a cross, bearing our sins, spilling his blood. He died in our place. Therefore, he's the merciful and faithful high priest who enters into the most holy place before God and one, completely and finally makes atonements for our sin by his own blood and two, casts our sins as far as the east is from the west where they're remembered no more. So the love of God has brilliantly been put on display in the propitiation of Jesus Christ for our sins, which means he has appeased the wrath of God and he satisfied the demands of God's holy justice. 
So that's how God can be both just and loving. As our great high priest, as the scriptures tell us, Jesus Christ proclaimed on that cross, it is finished. No more sacrifice has to be made. He made it once and for all. And and the scriptures also tell us that he split the curtain of the holy place from top to bottom. And he's now seated at the right hand of God where he rests from his work. But his atoning blood, saving all who would ever believe in him throughout the centuries, continues on forever and ever. Our propitiation, our great high priest, the source and the example of true love is Jesus. And if Jesus had not come born in a manger, then there would be no peace There would be no hope. We would never truly know the love of God. And now that Jesus is seated in heaven, it isn't as if his love has just disappeared. Now that Jesus is not here on earth anymore, it's not like God's love is no longer tangible, like it's no longer here. No, he's left us as Christians, as believers here for a reason. And our third point is that his love is perfected in us. Let's pick up at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John MacArthur writes something that I thought was very profound and it's it's awesome. He says, the only demonstration of God's love in this age is the church. The only demonstration of God's love in this age is the church. So those who, who are called out believers in Jesus Christ. And he's right. Because after all, no one can physically see the love of God. It's not just like some, some mist flying through the air that we can see, right? It's, it's not something that we can fix our eyes upon. And Jesus is, is no longer here living on the earth uh, for the love. Uh, uh, no, Sorry, Jesus is no longer in the earth living the love of God for all to see. He's no longer here in his ministry on the earth. We don't get to just walk up to Jesus and see Jesus do these things and heal this person and do these miracles and be like, holy smokes, check that out. The love of God on display through Jesus Christ. He's no longer here to do that. But what did Jesus say? He said that he would not leave us as orphans, right? He said that he'd leave us with a helper. He said he lived us with a counselor, the Holy Spirit. And so as Christians, we're here in this world filled with the very Spirit of God to be bold witnesses of the love of God. And, and, and we are the only demonstration of God's love in this age. And so love is at the very center of our witness as Christians. And so evangelism, for instance, is, is what I mean by, by witness. Evangelism or sharing the gospel with lost souls would really render ineffective without love. It would be, it would be pointless. And I'm not saying that we have the power to convert anybody or, or the level that we love somebody is, is how people are converted. I'm not saying that at all. But what kind of witnesses are we as we share the gospel if we do not have love? If we share the gospel and we're miserable Christians, share the gospel and we're hateful people, we're sharing the gospel at a workplace, but we talk about Jim and Joe over there behind their back. What kind of witnesses would we be if we share the gospel? Or to share the gospel, we didn't have love. What kind of witnesses would we be if we have hearts full of hatred? So since the Father so loved us and He sent His Son to die in our place, since Christ was ridiculed, since Christ was beaten, since Christ was crucified, and since Christ was murdered for us, Since our God made such a great sacrifice and given us the greatest gift in eternity, ought we to love one another? If he laid down his life for us, ought we to lay down our lives for other people? Ain't that what he calls us to do? To pick up our cross and follow after him? Greater love knows no man than this, than for one to lay down his life for his friends. 
Because of the great sacrificial love of God, we are to follow this pattern and this example of self-sacrificial love that's given to us by Him. And so, maybe you're deciding <clears throat> to be very analytical right now. Maybe you're, maybe you're thinking, man, I'm going to pick this, these verses apart, and I want to know, hey, who's one another? Is one another just like people here in this church? Is, is that what you mean, Tanner? Like, do I just got to love people here? Or you talking about if I got to love people out there, too, in the, in the streets? Like, even that guy who smells funny? I mean, what do you mean about loving one another? And I want to remind you of something that, that maybe you must have missed or maybe I must have missed in Luke's gospel. See, in, in Luke in chapter 10, uh, he, he tells this story uh, uh, in a sense. Well, something happens. This, this lawyer comes up to Jesus and he, and, and, he, and he asks Jesus this question. Hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you, how do you perceive it? How do you read it? And he says, oh, well, it says that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And, and in fact, you better love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and Jesus said, hey, you know, you go and do that, and you'll inherit eternal life. But seeking to justify himself, the lawyer said, who's my neighbor? It's the same thing as what I just said a second ago. Who's one another, right? Who's, who's my neighbor? Who do I really got to love? And Jesus tells this story. He, he gives a parable of, of the Samaritan. And now when we see a Samaritan in, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, right, we have to remember that the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were half-breeds to them, right? They were traitors to them. They, 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 to have a dealing with a Samaritan was looked bad upon, right? Like, like, you're not supposed to do that. It was frowned upon. So he gives this story. The Samaritan walking on down the way. He's robbed. He's mugged. He's beaten up, thrown in the ditch more or less. A Levite, a priest, all these people walk past him. These people who are holy, right? Who, who love God, right? These people who, who, who are so religious, they just walk right on past, past this guy who's in need. And then somebody else comes along, whatever, and picks him up and takes him to the inn, to the inn and, um, and pays his way. He's really kind to him. And Jesus asks him, you know, so who's, who's the neighbor in the story? And he said, well, the one who showed him grace. And so what this does is it demonstrates our responsibility to be a neighbor, even to the person that we despise the most. It demonstrates our responsibility to be a neighbor, even to the person that we despise the most, even to the person that's especially, especially to the person who's in need. See, it's our responsibility to lay down our lives for others. And maybe you say, I understand that we're supposed to love one another, Tanner, but, but you don't know what that person did to me. I understand that we're supposed to love one another, but you don't know what that person said about me, Tanner. I understand that we're supposed to love one another, but, but you don't know what, how, what kind of an evil man that person is. I'm supposed to love one another, but that person smells bad. That person looks funny. That person over there on the corner is weird. What do you mean I'm supposed to love him and share the gospel with him and be kind to him? But that person over there is scary. He's got tattoos on his face and he's a weird guy. How am I supposed to love him? Maybe you feel a call to missions and you're saying, I know I'm supposed to love everyone, love one another, but do you know what that unreached people group and that tribe over there on that coast across the sea will do to me if I go over there and tell them that everything they've ever believed is wrong and repent and believe in Jesus? Do you know what they're going to do to me? Do I really have to love them? Let me remind you of love that was displayed for us. And, and Romans in chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. 
But God, in verse 8, but God shows His love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were ugly, while we were smelly, while we were weird, while we were scary, violent, addicted, vile, sin-sick sinners, Christ died for us ungodly and unrighteous people. Ought we to love others the same way? Who are you to say that you're better than somebody else? Who are you to say that I don't need to love that person? So back to 1 John. The one another, yes, is to those in the church, but it's also those outside of the church whose, whose greatest need is to come face to face with the love of God and be forgiven. But how will they come face to face with the love of God and be forgiven if they do not hear the gospel? They won't. And if we don't preach the gospel, they won't hear the gospel and believe and be forgiven. How are they going to come face to face with the greatest love if we don't tell them? Well, the best gift that was ever given to mankind if we don't tell them. It's great to invite people to church, and I'm not knocking you for, for inviting people to church. You should invite people to church. But I want to remind you that it's not my job to share the gospel and demonstrate the love of God to the people that God has placed you to live, to work, and to play around. He's put you there for a reason. And, and have you considered the fact that, that God has you at the very job, at the very school, at the very neighborhood, in the very family that you're in so that you'll be a witness of His great love? Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes I forget that. Sometimes I forget that the people that God has placed in front of me are indeed divine appointments. God God has put me in a neighborhood where I shop at a local grocery store almost every single time because there's people there that need to know the love of God, right? And it's through my witness, through the very words of the gospel, that they're going to hear it, repent, believe, and come to know the best and greatest, truest love, truest love that's ever been given. So what good are we as Christians if we don't love others enough to tell them that sin kills, that hell is hot, and that Jesus is real, and that He saves. What good is it? What good are we if we don't tell them? Sin kills, hell's hot, Jesus saves. As we mentioned before, the, the love that we're called to display is sacrificial. And so what that means is literally laying down our lives for other people. For husbands, what did God call us to do in Ephesians? Husbands, love your wives as and laid himself down for her. So it, it's, it's not just other people, but it starts right here in our homes, in our hearts. Love our wives. Um, love each other. Mm. Laying down our lives for other people. My wife and I have picked up our life where we were in Missouri to come here to lay down our lives and sacrifice some of our own desires so that people may hear the gospel and be saved. And you guys have so bravely, awesomely joined us in that journey to make sure that the folks here in Omaha can hear the gospel, right, and be saved. It's amazing. So being part of this church plant, you're doing that. You're laying down your lives so that other, may, so that other people may hear the gospel, come face to face with the greatest love ever known. So we've got to sacrifice our time so that others may know Christ. We've got to sacrifice our money so that others may know Christ. 
We've got to sacrifice our comfort so that others may know Christ. We've got to sacrifice our social status so that others may know Christ. We've got to sacrifice our home so that others may know Christ. Sacrificing our cars even so that others may know Christ. Sacrificing even our life if God calls us to do it so that others may know Christ. And this is the love that we're obligated to demonstrate. In this life of sacrifice towards one another, the love of God is perfected in us. We are the only source of love that's put on display in this age. How will people know the love of God if we don't tell them, if we don't show them? So as I close, let me remind us all that, that love originated from God has been made known to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and is perfected by us as Christians who are still in this world. And I want to remind us that we have the ministry of reconciliation. It's up to us to, to share the love of a holy God with, with sinful and fallen humanity. And I want you to know that this love has a name, and His name is Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus, for He will save His people from sin. So Joanna, you can come on up and... As Joanna begins to, to play softly and, those, uh, and, we, and we're closing and wrapping this thing up, I, I want to remind us of something. After Jesus was born, there was a man named Simeon in the temple. And Simeon told Mary something that was really beautiful. See, God had told Simeon that, that he wouldn't die until he saw the face of his Savior. And when he saw the face of his Savior, he told Mary this, Behold, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And he told Mary this, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts, may be, or thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Jesus Christ is the child that was appointed to be a stone of stumbling to those who reject him, to be a fountain rising up to eternal life for those who believe in him. Uh, Jesus Christ was the child that was appointed that would crush his own mother's heart as he hung upon that cross where he would die for us. He's the child that was appointed that would manifest the love of God that we might live perfect or that we might live through him eternally. He's the child that was appointed in whom we as Christians tell the world about. Unto us a Savior has been born. And if you would believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. So what? What's all this mean? Love from the Father was displayed in the Son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place, and we are called to love others in the same way. So what? What's this mean? What are you doing with the love that's been manifested to, to us in, in, in the birth of Jesus Christ? What are you doing with it? Are you sitting on it? Are you sleeping on the love of God that's been manifested to us? By Him sending His only Son into the world that we might live through Him because He would be our propitiation, appeasing the wrath of God and satisfying His holy demands? Are you loving one another? Just remember that a life we're living is a life of love. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that You've called us here to this place. That you called us here as a church. God, we're so grateful that um, for Your Word and for Your Son, Jesus, that He is our propitiation for our sins, the appeasement and the satisfaction of Your holy demands for justice. Without Jesus coming into this world, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in a manger in Bethlehem, 
We'd have no hope, no love, no joy, no peace. So God, we ask this morning that you had been glorified. We ask that you continue to help us worship you through song. We pray these things in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.